0: This is Rob Long with Martini Shot for The Ankler. Let me start with a confession. Years ago, I had a television show on the air, and it was the first time I had a series of my own. And it told the story of five young people living in New York City. And it wasn't the international monster hit Friends. It was another version. Created, I hasten to add, at the very same time as Friends, so you know nobody was stealing anything from anybody. I was in my mid 20s then, and these were the kinds of things I was interested in, so it made sense to create and produce a television series about the life my friends and I were leading. It also made sense to the smart and accomplished creators of Friends. Now, here's the confession just because Friends was a hit and my show was not, it was impossible for me to see Friends clearly without bias, or prejudice. I mean, I watched its first year of episodes with a permanent sneer on my face. I refused to see what was funny and charming and appealing about a show that pretty much everyone else in the world was raving about. This is interesting to you? I would ask my friends incredulously. You don't find it derivative and cutesy? I'd ask anyone who would listen. How can people choose this? And what's wrong with them? The truth, as we and one billion other television viewers know, is that Friends was a delightfully funny and smart show written by a talented and creative writing staff, and acted by brilliantly invented actors. It was a giant success, and it deserved to be and i'm 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 embarrassed now, looking back at how petty I was. How can people choose this? What's wrong with them? Now, this is what everyone in Hollywood asks petulantly when audiences turn to someone else's film or TV show. When the great mob of unpersuadable people choose to make someone else rich and successful. For every Oscar that's handed out, or more usually, every multi-million dollar studio deal signed, there are dozens of people sneering and cavilling on the sidelines, angry and peevish that they were left out of the goodies. It's sort of the same, maybe you'll agree, with politics. I mean, I don't know if you heard, but we had an election recently. And no, we are not going to talk about politics. Now, there are three big reasons that I hate to talk about politics. My job on the page and on the screen and whatever this is, is just to be funny. And talking about politics is like talking about digestive problems. It's hard to listen to material about that subject without feeling sick yourself. So that's the first reason. The second reason, pure cowardice. I want everyone to like me. And when you talk about issues I've discovered, you can make people angry, even people who agree with you. Maybe especially people who agree with you, if you talk about them in the wrong way, which you are certainly going to do. Because people all over the world seem to have decided that the key to having a fun conversation is to litigate every single word. The third reason is just laziness. I like talking mostly about me. It's my favorite subject. It's my only subject, and adding anything else into the mix just cuts into the me-time. And worse, once you've decided to dive into serious political discourse, you're pretty much expected to know something about what you're talking about, or to have done even some cursory reading on the subject. At the very least, you need to know how to spell the names correctly. But look, no matter what side you're on, the problem with voters is the problem with audiences. They cannot be trusted to behave themselves. They always, ultimately refuse to follow orders the audience and the voting public will disappoint you sometimes and lift you up at other times but what they should never do if you're in the entertainment business or the political business is surprise you because that means you haven't been listening that means you've spent too long in one place surrounded by echoes it's hard for us in show business to listen to the audience because we don't often meet them but the closest a lot of us come to an actual audience is the crew and even though they're paid to be there They can tell you something. A few years ago, during a long, hot-tempered pilot production week, I was hanging out backstage waiting for the fresh cookies to appear on the craft services table when I overheard one of the set decorators ask the gaffer if a certain set decoration looked right in the light. Who cares, the gaffer shrugged. This thing is never going to see the light of day. At which point they both suddenly realized that I was not back in my office, where I usually was, getting script notes for the network, which I usually did. But instead, I was just a few steps away. It was awkward. Worse, I think, for me, because I sort of saw his point. The week had been rocky going. We had made some midweek casting changes. The script hadn't gelled yet. In many ways, it was a typical pilot production week, and we had only three days left to get it right. Still, more than anything, his comment stung because it revealed a vulnerability. All of us who write or direct or produce or act, all of us, to use the blunt direct budget term we use in Hollywood, above the line, what we all have about what the people who do the real work in Hollywood, the lighting, the building, the sound, the electricity, the technical stuff that keeps production moving along, the budgetary below the line crew, what they think about what we're doing about the script we're producing. For most of us, the production crew is about as close as we get to real people. People, that is, who don't, for the most part, live in the 310 or the 323, who have longish commutes, who get there way before we do, who leave way after we've left. What they think of our script and our show matters a lot. Is the crew laughing is one of the questions we ask all the time on a comedy shoot. Because unlike the writers and producers and studio executives, they are not paid to laugh. Or to put it more honestly, they're not paid enough to pretend to enjoy something that they are not enjoying. The most expensive laughter in Hollywood is fake laughter. You get it from your agent and your manager and your lawyer and your tax guy, your wife, your husband, but the crew the crew is paid, not much in the scheme of things, to lay dolly track and pull focus and to lift stuff and plug stuff in, to build living rooms, to hang exterior trans lights and try not to get electrocuted. So fake laughter? Way, way down on their list of services. So when the camera operator laughs, it matters. When the guy moving cable waits a few moments to watch the end of a scene, believe me, it means the scene is worth watching. And when the gaffer tells a set decorator that this thing will never see the light of day, well, it is something you think about, and carry with you all week. Who cares what the network thinks of it? They're always wrong. They live in a haze of self-delusion, a world of pointless meetings and pompous bosses and ludicrous market research. But the crew? The crew sees lots of shows and lots of productions in a nine-month period. The crew usually knows. And so, at the end of this particular production week, after I have to say we... Got the script in great shape and the cast came together when the gaffer came up to me and said, wow, great show. I know part of him was saying, please don't fire me if this thing goes just because I said that thing when you were waiting for your cookies. But a bigger part of him was saying, wow, great show. And that carried a lot of weight. A few years later, I was visiting a writer friend of mine with a show on the air, and as I wandered over to the craft services table, as one does, I bumped into a guy who was a camera operator on a lot of shows I've done, and we reminisced a bit, and then I said, hey, how's this show doing? And he said, this show's great, really. Probably the best show I've ever worked on. I laughed because I thought he was kidding, and said something like, yeah, you mean it's one of the best shows you've worked on, right? Right. And he said in a cheerful, honest, perfectly friendly voice, no, I think it's better than the shows you've done. Which is something he could have kept to himself, but that's the problem with people who do honest work. They're honest. Unlike a lot of us. In Hollywood and in Washington, You know, it's not that we're not honest or don't work hard. It's that we're insulated often from meeting our customers. We only notice they're no longer our customers when it's too late. A lot of what the entertainment business is experiencing in the marketplace and political parties are experiencing at the polls, the Olive Garden chain of restaurants went through a few years ago. Same location sales declined. The average check size went down. Fewer butts and fewer seats. Compare that to show business, to politics. It's not that different, really. People in the entertainment business like to think we do something unique, but it's really not. Some businesses have unlimited breadsticks. Others have superhero reboots pretty much the same, right? But when some private equity sharks took over the company that owns the Olive Garden, they did something a little different. They went to work at an actual Olive Garden. The new CEO and his team and the new board had to work a night at the Olive Garden serving Americans breadsticks and pasta and unlimited salad bowls. And yes, it was just one night. How hard could that be? But the truth is, for most of those people, my guess is very, very, very hard Put it this way, when was the last time the CEO of a major corporation got barked at by a guy in a tank top for not enough ice in the iced tea? The result was that they learned an awful lot about their business. They learned what was working and what was failing, and they learned that it was hard to fix certain things and why. They learned to simplify their offerings, support their key employees, and they learned who those key employees were. And they learned that there's a whole layer in the organizational chart that is categorically and reliably full of crap. And they learned how to make more money. So, free advice to anyone running a media business. Get out of the office for a week. Just work on a movie set. And not as a director, but as a wardrobe assistant or a loader or pushing the video village cart around. Hear a series pitch. Sit with a director of current programming and comedy during a note session. Spend a week watching a pilot get shot and edited. Sit in on casting. Sit in on a rewrite, if you dare. Sit quietly and learn. Learn that it's hard to get butts in seats. Hard to know what's going to hit and what's not. Learn who the key employees are because they're probably the ones you've seen on the job. And that, well, that's all the free advice you're getting from me because advice, unlike breadsticks, is not free. Years ago, I had a meeting with an actor who had been for most of the 1970s, the most famous and successful movie star in Hollywood. And he was in my office because he had run out of money. How exactly, I wanted to know, does a movie star fritter away tens and sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars? Years ago, the actor in my office must have seen that question somewhere in my facial expression or tone of voice because he was quick to offer an explanation. At a certain point he said, I just couldn't do anything by myself. I had... Dozens of people working for me. Doing what, I asked. The actor shrugged. No idea, he said. But he had lawyers and two agents and a team of business managers all helping themselves to a generous percentage of his annual earnings. He had been bled white over the years by his personal retinue. And now he was in my office looking to be in a sitcom for which he cheerfully blamed his entourage of advisors. That was only a partial explanation, of course. He omitted the dozens of houses he bought, the unrestrained spending sprees on luxury items, his unwillingness to fly in anything less than a private jet. But when people lose money, or elections, or market share, or an audience, the first thing they ask themselves is, did I lose it, or was it stolen? And everyone prefers to think that it was stolen, because then it's somebody else's fault. You can be a victim. But if you lose millions of dollars or an election or an audience because you've lost touch with them, well, then you're not a victim. You're just in an echo chamber and you weren't paying attention. So if you're having a hard year in the entertainment business or if you're a loser at the polling place, I know it's tempting to think that it's all unfair. It's all a mistake. You were robbed. The voters and the audience were duped or maybe just plain stupid, but it's none of those. It's much simpler. There was a much better show on the air. And that's it for this week. Next week, we drive through the gates. For The Ankler, this is Rob Long with Martini Shot.